can't help but smile at the end of that video, right? Yeah, yeah. Courtney has a story um, you'll get to hear soon. That's Courtney in the video. And uh, I look forward to the day she's able to tell more of uh, why that smile is on her face and even some things that's happened since the day we recorded that. So I look forward to that. I'm very glad to be here in person this week. I was, yeah, amen. Whew. I'm grateful for technology that allows us to do a lot of crazy things these days, but I'm, there's nothing like being together in person, right? And um, what a crazy two weeks it's been uh, for our church family and a lot of people in this area who have walked through a lot of different struggles and illnesses, and uh, I'm so grateful for God's healing hand. Um, Everyone in our family is now well and past their quarantine and all doing well. So I'm grateful to God for that. Uh, and much within our church family as well. Uh, God's done some amazing things. There's, uh, we still have a few that are still battling even this morning. And I appreciate your prayers for those who are still walking through illness today. Uh, some amazing uh, restoration stories coming out though. And over the next few weeks, you're going to get to hear these stories. God never does anything by accident or happenstance. And this series, he planned, and he planned circumstances, even that none of us even realized were going to happen. And you're going to hear some stories of restoration that are just going to fire you up. So uh, I'll just tell you, you're not going to want to miss next Sunday <laughs> and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that. There's some, there's some great things coming. That's just all I can say at this point. We continue our series today, The God Who Restores All Things, and He does. Just when you think you've walked through the greatest pain, the greatest loss, the greatest tragedy, God rushes in with grace to restore. And there's nothing like the feeling of loss. I don't know if you've ever experienced tragedy in the, in the way of having someone break into your stuff and take what belongs to you. It's a very awkward, terrible feeling to be violated have someone come into your space, whether it be your home, your car, whatever it is, and take what belongs to you. And that's happened a, a couple of times to us over the years. And uh, the most awkward thing is entering back into that space afterwards when someone has, you know, they've been in your space. And you think, oh man, they touched my stuff. They were right here. They took what belonged to me. It's a very offensive feeling to have that kind of hurt. And so we end up doing things in our life to help prevent that. We put locks on our doors. We put extra locks on our doors. And uh, we put in doorbells that have video cameras in them that play to our phone. We put in security systems. And we put our valuables away. And we lock them up. And we make those things secure. And we get weapons at our house and sometimes more than one or two or 10. So beware, if you wanna break in anybody in this church's house, I'll just tell you, would not be wise. <laughs> because we know we don't like feeling violated and we don't like people taking our stuff. It's our stuff. God gave it. We work for it. It's ours. Don't touch my stuff. Amen? There are thieves today. There are people who are bent on taking other people's stuff. And there is an eternal thief who is bent on taking our stuff. He wants to enter into the secret place of our hearts he wants to take what is valuable to us and he wants to destroy. He wants to see you hurt. The Bible describes it like this. Jesus describes it like this. The thief does not come 
except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to enter into the places of your life where you have been handed treasure by God, where you have been given an inheritance in Christ, where you have been given peace that passes all understanding, where you have been given forgiveness for all your sin, where you have been given the gift of righteousness, where you have been given rest in the Lord. He, this thief, wants to come in and steal that from you. He wants to take it from you so that you don't get to enjoy it anymore. He wants to rob, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy your ability to live in faith and hope and peace. And in reality, you and I, at times in our life, have even opened the door to let him in to do that, right? By our own disobedience to God, our own giving in to temptations, our own choice to be deceived and follow a lie, we, in a sense, take the lock off, undo the deadbolt, turn off the ring doorbell, swing the door wide open, hold the screen door open, and let him on in. And when we do, he does. He, he plunders. He takes what he wants. And it hurts. Lord willing, we come to the place of recognizing what he has taken, what he has stolen from us. We recognize we are the ones who believe the lie, who refuse to do what Jesus asked. And then we just say, God, I'm undone. I, I opened the door and he stole from me. The good news and the gospel is that where there has been sin, there can be fresh grace. The Bible says that where sin abounded, where it was in full-fledged form, where you gave into it and you gave into it willingly and you acted on it, and when it was done, and when others had done it to you, when others had cheated you and lied to you and stolen from you, when you felt all the pain that went with the sin you committed and that others committed against you, in that place where sin abounded, the Bible says grace abounded more, more. God rushes to that place where you have been hurt and where you have done the hurt, hurting he rushes in with more grace than there was sin. He overflows grace where there was sin. Hey, that gives me hope because every one of us have some places where sin has abounded. Amen? And every one of us then had the ability to receive grace that is bigger than that sin. So we've been in this series, The God Who Restores All Things. And we've used this verse as kind of our launching point. We've also used the Old Testament law. The law uh, God gave to his people for them to live by, and it gave them very specific commandments in how to live and operate and function as a people. And in that law, uh, there was a law of restoration. And one of them went like this, that if a man stole another person's sheep and he sold that sheep or slaughtered it. That the one who stole it when he was caught, he was to restore to the one he stole from not just one sheep. He was called to restore four sheep. One was lost and either sold off or slaughtered. He was to give four back where sin abounded Grace abounded all the more. You see what I'm saying? God restores, and he does it in greater form than the offense that took place. That's good news. Amen? So I want to replay a couple of principles here that we've learned so far because it's going to come into play today in our message. And here, here are the principles and truths we learned so far. That God restores when we are honest about our failure and loss. 
You can't ever have restoration happen in your life if you don't ever say, I've lost something. Hey, I've lost something. Someone's taken something from me. If you don't ever claim that you've had something taken from you, you can't ever have God, the judge, declare that the other person needs to pay back. If you don't ever take your case to the judge, he can't ever begin the process of restoration. If someone takes something from your house, if you don't ever call the police, you can't ever have the process of justice even begin. Hello? You have to start by admitting and being honest about there's been some failure and there's been some loss. The second point we've learned is God restores in the place of our greatest failure and loss. In that place where you suffered loss, in that place where you suffered pain, that's where God restores. And he does it in that spot. Just like the law said, if a man steals a sheep, sells it or slaughters it, he's to restore four sheep. He didn't say if a man loses a sheep, he's to return four mice. It didn't work that way. He didn't say four turtles. He didn't say four turkey legs. He said, no, sheep come back for the sheep. In the area, the very specific area where you have lost, where you have had pain, where you've had something taken from you, that's exactly what God wants to restore back to you. But that brings us to our third point. When God restores, he restores more than what has been lost or stolen. It's four to one at least. There are some times in the Bible where there was a seven to one ratio for return, for restoration. So God's process of restoration works like this. And you know, sometimes if we're not careful, we can get focused on this being only about physical, tangible things. We can start thinking, oh, well, this applies to uh, that job I lost, that car I had stolen. Does that mean I'm going to get four cars back for that one car, that kind of thing, you know? People think, well, I lost $10,000 in that deal. Am I going to get $40,000 back? You know, those are things that God sometimes does. Those are things that God may do. But Jesus was also very clear. He said, look, don't lay up treasures in places where moth or rust or thieves break in or steal. Moth and rust to cause decay. Or thieves break in and steal. Don't let that be your focus. So I want, there's some things I'd love to see God restore in a physical, tangible way. But God is far more interested in some things that are not of this world. Things that are not always so physical, tangible. God is interested in matters of the soul. And the enemy likes to come in there and steal the most. So today our message is called, He Restores My Soul. Mm. So we're going to go into some places today of our soul and see the restoration that God wants to do there. And let me, let me draw some boundaries here and some definitions to begin with because the soul is one of those words that sometimes in the faith we don't use correctly. The Bible says that you and I are made up of spirit, soul, and body. It's in the New Testament. And God is determined in his will to see the sanctification, the restoration of all three of those. Okay? The spirit is that inner part of you. It's where your conscience dwells. It's where genuine love dwells. It is where you dwell. It is that part of you that when you were born, was born dead. Your body was alive, but your spirit was apart from God. That's why the Bible says we must be born again that which is of the flesh is flesh, but that which is of the spirit is spirit. And so the spirit is that part of us that needs to be reborn. A person with a, a dead spirit within them is lost. They have no faith. They have no trust in God. They have no love for God. They have no sense of integrity or righteousness or truth or sincerity in their life. They live for themselves. But when we recognize and repent of our sin, 
the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the place of our spirit and makes us alive in him. And our spirit is reborn. And now that core in you and I, if we've been saved, is made new. I am not who I was. And there's not two spirits within there anymore. There's the Holy Spirit who's come in and has become one with my spirit. I am one in him. He is in me, I am in him, and I am in Christ. Amen? And that part of me has been redeemed, fully set free, forgiven, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And the Bible even says that part of me has been called blameless, righteous, and holy. That's my spirit within me. But the Bible also says we are made up of a soul. Now, this is where it gets confusing sometimes because sometimes Christians use soul interchangeably for spirit. We do that sometimes. And even the Bible sometimes in our English translations does that. And so we talk about, well, God saved my soul when I was 17 years old. I understand what you're talking about, but the real Bible definition is spirit for that. That's what was redeemed was your spirit, that center part of you. Your soul according to the scripture, is actually made up of your own mind and your emotions and your will. So your way of thinking, your way of processing life, your emotional responses to life, and even your own decision-making, your will, is part of your soul. That part of us is in process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Amen? Because our thought processes are not all perfectly biblical. Amen? I I still struggle with my thoughts sometimes. Am I the only one in the room? No, everybody in here, right? I struggle with my thoughts. I have to have them conform to the image of Christ. I have to have my mind renewed because that part of me is still in process of becoming like Christ. My spirit, already there. But my mind, I'm in this process of training it to think like my spirit already is. And I am in the process of bringing my emotions under control of the spirit. Amen? I'm not going to let my emotions reign me. Now, I wrestle in this area too because I can let my emotions have a greater voice than the spirit of God in my spirit sometimes. Amen? And I have to rein that in and say, emotion, I know you feel this way right now. I know you feel anxious. But God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. I bring my emotions under control of the spirit. You see what I'm saying? Because my emotions and my mind are part of the soul. And my will, I have to bring my will under control because my will sometimes wants to do its thing differently than the thing God wants me to do. Amen? So I'm in the process of bringing my soul under the influence of my spirit and letting it lead. Let the spirit lead. This is the process of what God is doing in our life. So in all of our souls, not spirit, soul, We've experienced pain in our life, suffering in our life, rejection, hurt, guilt, shame. And those things, they hurt the soul. And the soul has to be brought back under this place of submission to the spirit. Peter even wrote in the New Testament, he said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Be careful because there are things out there that will war against the soul, war against what God is wanting to do. And God is wanting to come into your soul 
that place of all your memories and your feelings and your thoughts and your decisions and all of your past, he's wanting to come in there and restore the very places where you have experienced so much pain and loss. God doesn't see those areas and say, ooh, ooh, that is ugly and nasty. That's just dark and oppressive. I'm not going there. No, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God rushes to it to say, let me in there. I've got work to do because I want my people free. I want them free to live with peace. I want them free to live with hope. I want them free so that they can just live in wild trust and abandon to me. I want them so much to experience what it's like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus said. This is what Jesus wants for all of us. So this series, when we talk about the God who restores all things, I mean, it would be awesome, as I said, if some of the physical and tangible things we've maybe lost over time or had taken from us, if God restored those, he may or may not end this life. But I know one thing he is passionate about is restoring our soul that's been hurt. So today we're going to look at some scripture where that is reaffirmed to us. We know, as Caleb mentioned earlier, Psalm 23. And we know it was written by David, a man who had experienced a lot of great highs and a lot of great lows in his life. David was a man who had been protected as a young boy when he stood up against a giant named Goliath, and God gave him victory. Man, you'd think that'd be enough high to get you through the rest of your life, facing that kind of victory and just living off of that one. And God chooses him to be a king. He's anointed to be a king. God makes a covenant with David as a king. And God promises to be with him and to bless him. And an amazing story comes out of all of that. David had experienced some incredible highs, but David had also experienced some very difficult low points in his life. David had experienced what it was like to fail miserably and commit adultery. David knew the guilt, the shame, the pain. David knew the guilt that came from even him having Bathsheba's wife murdered. David experienced all of the regret and the loss and the hurt and the darkness that was associated with that. David experienced what it was like to have the former king, his best friend's dad, hunt him down and seek to kill him. David knew what it was like to have lost a son shortly after birth. David knew what it was like to have a son rebel against him and want to kill him. David knew what it was like to walk through darkness. And much of what we have in the book of Psalms is David writing from those places in his soul. He's writing from all those places in very honest and real terms. And he puts them in music form in the book of Psalms. And we know many of the background of those psalms. We can tell in the subscript, or you can tell from the, the what he writes, where it came from. If it came from a time of desperation, or if it came from a time of just absolute joy in what God had done in his life. But when you come to Psalm 23, we don't have the background. We don't know exactly what had happened that had led him to that place. We don't know what had brought him to the place where he would say, man, I am struggling with my future and what is going to happen next. We don't know what brought him to the place of why he would say, I'm facing so much need right now in my life. I don't even know what to do next. 
of why he would be so emotionally and mentally distressed, why he would be feeling like he was attacked and violated, why he'd be walking through a place that felt like death was all around him. He was walking through all of that, and Psalm 23 is what he writes. So I want to read Psalm 23 today and see what David says to us there as he writes very honestly about struggle he'd walked through in his life. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here in this beautiful psalm written out of very real places of need, we have one verse that I want to stand on for just a moment that tells us what David knew and that tells us what we need to know today. Tucked into this psalm is this one short phrase, he restores my soul. Mm. You know, if you kind of read through the psalm, you might miss it if you're not careful. But here in the middle of it, in this early part of the psalm, is this phrase where David knew what it meant to have restoration. David knew the law. David knew that where there's loss, God wants to restore. And God wants to restore what was lost. And God wants to restore more than what was lost in that place if we'll come to him. And David said, I've known that. I've known the loss of peace. I've known the loss of freedom. I've known the loss of having a clear conscience with God. I've known the loss of feeling rejected and cast off and hunted. And David said, and in all of those, I've come to know this. He restores my soul. He does more in that place than I ever thought he would. And he brings back more than what was lost. What an amazing God we have, that he would choose to work in this way. That he would say, I'm going to take that area in your life where you have hurt the deepest. I'm going to take that area in your life where you have felt the greatest amount of rejection, depression, anxiety, loss, failure, guilt, shame, I'm going to take that area. I know you want to hide it from me, but I'm going to take that area and I'm going to restore into that area something more than you could have ever imagined because I am the God who restores the soul. Amen? The soul. Your thoughts, your emotions, your thinking processes are all very important to God. He didn't just say, oh, I just want your spirit. I just want to give you the ticket to heaven, and I just hope to see you there one day the rest of life. Well, you're on your own. No, God says, I'm in the process of restoring all things. I'm in the process of restoring you, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, so that your mind is conformed to the very image. You think the way that I think. You feel the way that I think. And when that happens, you and I go through a change in our life because all of a sudden then we can look at the places of infirmity, Paul would say, and say, I actually now 
take pleasure in my infirmities. That's what Paul would say. In my needs, in my persecution, in my distress, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. That's right. In those places, I become stronger when I let him into those places. I hope you feel already this sense of real personalness of God here today. I hope you already sense this presence of the Spirit of God speaking to your soul. That's his passion desire. He wants to take the exact places where you and I have been hurt and do his greatest work. For example, if you have faced rejection in your life, if you've known what it's like to be pushed aside, left out, not be part of the in crowd, to be mocked, to be left out of the group, if you've ever experienced that from friends, from family, or someone you deeply, deeply trusted, God knows, God sees, and that hurt that you bear in your soul for that, in your own thoughts, in your emotions, and in your will that chooses, that makes you run away when you see a group because you're afraid you're going to be rejected again, that makes you filled with doubt if anyone could ever love you again. God sees and knows all of that. He understands what you're walking through, and he rushes into that spot with great grace and says, I have something for you in my son, Jesus Christ, where you have experienced the greatest rejection. Here's what I give to you, acceptance in Jesus Christ. He says, now... You come to me, I fully accept you. Ephesians 1 says we have been accepted in the beloved. You've been brought in. You're part of the cool kid crowd now. You can look at everybody else and say, I don't need your group, your group, your group, your group, because I'm in this group now. And this is where I live with my hope. I have experienced rejection, but I know acceptance now, and I don't need any other groups. Amen? Yeah? This is what God does. And the way he does it, he over-restores. He overdoes it. That's what he does. Remember the four to one? That's what he does. He doesn't say, oh, you came to me in faith? Great. Well, you know, let's start working on this thing. We'll see how it goes. You know, I'll let you in for a little bit, and we'll do this, you know, 60-day trial period. See how this goes. Prove yourself faithful. Do some good work around. You know, I might let you on in a little bit further place within me. No, he says, when you come to me, I am going to take you, and you are immediately seated with me in heavenly places. You can't get any closer than that. You're in. You, you don't get in this progressively getting closer to God's stage. No, you are already in the Beloved. Now, my soul is still trying to catch up with all that. Hello? But I have been fully accepted in Jesus Christ. That's what he does. That's the kind of restoration he does. He takes where you have hurt, and he over-restores. He does great things. Maybe you've experienced some shame in your life where you've done some things that made you and make you feel completely unusable as though you should just be discarded, that you're ever incapable of ever knowing joy again, hope again, life again, love again, and you walk around with shame because of what you did in your past, because of that failure, that relationship, that decision, and you carry that shame and God says, that spot right there, he says, I'm drawn to that spot. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And God rushes to that with the grace of his son, Jesus, and says, I know you've experienced 
sin and great shame in your life. And maybe you've never told anybody else what you did, but I know, and I know what you're going through. And for that, he says, in my son, Jesus Christ, you are completely forgiven of your sin. You are washed. You are cleansed. You're fully forgiven. I don't hold that against you anymore. I have removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. It is no longer held to your account. God will never bring it up to you again, and you are made free in Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? He does more than just restore a little. He restores a lot because he gives you full pardon when you want to keep beating yourself up about what you did. Amen? This is the grace of Jesus Christ. So for those who maybe have experienced relentless guilt in their life, maybe you know somewhat like shame, this feeling of never being able to do enough, this feeling of never doing enough or being enough. There's something in you. You say, I can never do enough, and I'm never enough for God. I'm never able to do it right. I always see the worst. I'm always assuming the negative. I live with thoughts of failure and defeat. That's all I think about is what I've done wrong. There's a lot of Christians who live in this. And they assume God is is keeping a list. That God is ready to whack them on a on the head like some terrible whack-a-mole game just waiting to get you every time. And he's got a list over your head, and he's got pressure against you, and you're doing your best to try to measure up to him. And he says, that's not why I came. That relentless guilt, I actually sent my son to free you from that. He came and he went to the cross and took your sin and your guilt. He became the guilt offering so that you could be free. And here's what he does in his great grace that rushes to superabound in that spot to give much more. He says, when you come to me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your relentless guilt and I'm going to restore it, not just to the place where you're back at zero. I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to give you the righteousness of Jesus as a gift. I'm going to take where you think you haven't measured up and I'm going to overmeasure up for you. So that you never, ever have to worry about measuring up again. I'm going to give you the gift of righteousness. I'm not going to give you a list of do this now to get righteousness. I'm going to give it to you as a gift. The full righteousness of Christ. I'm going to call you as righteous as my son is righteous. I'm going to call you as holy as my son is holy. And let that then begin to restore your soul that has walked in guilt all of your life. This is how good our God is. He over restores because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen? For the place where you have walked with anxious fear where you've lived in the what if, where you've battled the racing thoughts where you've had to deal with the panic attacks and the anxiety that makes your heart race, where you've lived in fear of what could happen and you've lived without any stability and rest. The God who restores all things says, come to me and I will give you rest. And he gives us settled faith in the power of Jesus. This is what he does. He restores more than what was lost. And he causes his children to be at a place of great rest, to be at a place of great confidence in him. He is the one who knows all things, is working all things for good and for his glory who has not given us that spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You see, this is the God who restores. He always over abundantly restores. 
for those who have walked in emptiness, who've said, I don't have any purpose in life. I just, um, I don't know of a reason bigger than just to get up and go to work and come home and sit in a chair. For those who've walked with that kind of emptiness, who feel like they're living in a deficit, who feel like there's no purpose to their life, there's no design, who can't see how it's all going to work out to something better, God says, if you'll come to me through my son Jesus, I will give you something far greater than your emptiness. I'll replace that with overflowing purpose in Christ. I'll give you a reason to live. I'll call you. I'll, I'll tell you what your, your purpose in life is. I will, I will dwell in you. I will fill you. I will use you. I'll work through you. And so that you'll have a purpose to get up in the morning. You'll have a purpose when you put your head on your pillow at night. You'll have a purpose for every event that happens in your day because this is the way God works. He over and abundantly restores and gives grace in the place of greatest need. Amen? For those who have known raging anger, for those who have walked with frustration in life, that things aren't working out like you thought, that you can't seem to make everyone else do what you want them to do, you can't make circumstances all happen like you want them to, for those who have walked in uncontrollable rage and the inability to even control your own thoughts, grace rushes to you to change you. And Jesus gives to those who will come incredible, peaceful contentment in Christ. He restores more than what you could have ever imagined. He takes that place of rage and he brings great peace. He says, you can stop now. You can stop trying to be enough. Stop trying to control everything. Stop trying to think you have to manage life. I have come to restore your soul to trust in me, to rest in me, and he over-restores. This, this is the way God works. And for those who have walked in death of the soul, who have walked with darkness inside, physically alive but dead inside, who've walked with no meaning and no purpose and no hope and no joy and no love and it's all darkness and only despair and only gloom in the future and there's no sense of joy and there's no sense of hope. He says to those who have walked in death, he said, I have come. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundant. The thief comes to give death, but he says, I've come to bring life to you. And for those who will walk in Jesus Christ, he restores into them life. And you see these people and you know them because they walk through difficult times in their life and they're filled with joy in the midst of it. Of course there's times they're sad. Of course there's times they struggle. But the joy that they have in them is bigger than the circumstances that are happening to them because Jesus gives them life in the midst of that. Now, I want to I close with a story from Scripture today that gives us an, a good living example. There's nothing like a great story to help us have an example. So Luke 7 is where we're going to finish up today. story of a woman here who experienced much of what we're talking about. She knew what it was like to have hurt and loss and have her soul be filled with death. And Jesus is about to do something to change her spirit and change her soul. Let me just ask. You want your soul restored, right? I do. How many of you would say, I've got places in my soul, my mind, my emotions and my will, my memories, all those things, my level of passion, I've got stuff I'm still, I'm still waiting to see God restore. Amen? Yeah, that's all of us. We have places within us, places of grief, places of hurt, places of rejection, loss. And that's the spot God wants to work in your life. 
This is what happens in Luke 7, verse 36, is where we're going to start today. Uh, this is obviously during the time of Jesus, and Jesus is ministering, and Jesus is going about town, and he's developing relationships, and he's becoming known for the miracles. He's becoming known as a, the man from God who's giving forgiveness and grace. And the story says here in verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Jesus gets a dinner invitation to come to one of the Pharisees' house, one of the religious uh, leaders, one of, the, one of those who were consumed with keeping the law for their righteousness. And it says he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Hmm. A woman who was a sinner. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of definition right here, but this is, this is Bible language to say everybody knew this woman was known sinner in the town. She's that woman. She's that woman who's with a lot of other men. She's that woman who's with that man and that man and that man and that man. She's that woman. She's the sinner. She's the one who's lived in a dark place. She's the one who's tried to find some kind of joy in her life in some very wrong places. It says that um, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, she finds her way into this man's house. I don't know if he left the door open. I don't know if someone else opened it for her. If she just found her way in and said, I'm coming in. And when she came in, she brought with her a flask that is filled with expensive perfumed ointment. She's that woman, so she doesn't have much. But she has this. She has this oil. She has this fragrant oil. I don't know if it was part of her trade. I don't know if she bought it for this occasion with what little money she had, but she brings that oil. And it says she stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. This is causing quite a scene at the dinner table where this woman comes in and she begins to weep. She is broken over her past. She's broken over what she's done. She's broken all of the commandments and she is broken over that. And she is there standing it says at first at the feet of Jesus, but then pretty soon you find her in another posture. She is down, face down on the ground because you can't get your hair washing someone's feet unless your face is in the dirt to begin with. And she is in this ultimate place of just worship before Jesus. And she's pouring out this oil and the scent is beginning to fill the room. Her tears, the sound of her crying is filling the room. And this act of her washing his feet with her hair and sobbing is becoming very, very obvious to everyone in the room. And nobody else is doing that. The Pharisee is sitting very respectfully at his table while she sits very broken on the floor. In verse 39, it says, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. So that's kind of one of those little conversations you have inside your head, you know? You don't want anybody else to hear it, but you're sure thinking it, right? Yeah. It's important sometimes that that stuff stays inside your head. You know that, right? You don't have to always say, here, what's here, right? Unless God puts something here and you need to speak it here, then you do. But that's another message altogether. It says that... Um, he spoke to himself. He said, this man, if he were a prophet, who would, 
who this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This man's thinking, this is no prophet. This is no man of God. This is no one who knows anything about what is true and righteous because if he did, he would know who this is and what she's doing and he would not be allowing her to do this because she is a sinner. The Pharisees thinking all this inside his head. Verse 40, it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, I'm sure the man was shocked because he had said this to himself, not to anybody else. And Jesus says, I heard your conversation. I know what you're saying. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, huh? Huh? What? I have something to say to you. And not to be embarrassed in his own home, he said, Teacher, say it. He's trying to be respectful. Verse 41, Jesus tells a story. He says, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. In other words, there was a man who had given some money out. He was the one who was the creditor. He let someone else have credit, and he said there were two people who were in debt to him, two debtors, two people who owed him something. And he said one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 So one owes a smaller amount, and the other owes a lot, like 10 times more, okay? Verse 42, and when they had nothing with which to repay, in other words, the end of the week came, they've got no money and cannot pay their bill, not the one who has 50 or not the one who has 500. It says that when he had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both, The debtor said, you know what? Um, God's forgiven me. I'm forgiving you. You're released of your debt. You don't owe 50 and you don't owe 500. And Jesus said, here's the hook. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Mm. Which of them is going to have the heart that's restored more? Which of them is going to have the biggest life change within them? Which of them is going to be changed by the experience of being forgiven more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He's trying to, again, be respectable. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, hmm. Here's the point. We had the hook. Here's the point. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The one who said, wow, you have forgiven me so much, is the one who loved much. And this woman, because she allowed the restorative power of God through Jesus to change her, she loved deeply. This wasn't just a Sunday school interaction. This was absolute life change for her. This was every sin she'd committed, every vile thought she'd ever had, every act she'd ever done, everything that she'd done in disobedience, every moment of feeling rejected, every moment of feeling isolated, every moment of shame, every moment of guilt. She brought those and brought them to the feet of Jesus and worshiped him because she knew he would restore her. 
while the respectable Pharisee just sat back and said, hmm, how could you do such a thing, letting a sinner touch you? He elevated himself, and she lowered herself. And she went away, restored that day, because she was willing to let her heart crack wide open at the feet of Jesus. You don't get restoration in your life until you're at that place. You don't get restoration by being respectable. You don't get restoration by being trying to look good to everybody. You don't get restoration by sitting at the table when you ought to be on your face. You don't get to restoration when you try to hold on to everything you got. You get to restoration when you pour out all you've got to Jesus. When you're willing to be at that place, then you get restored. And this is what Jesus does. I get a little nervous sometimes when I read this passage and I think about us in our day and how respectable sometimes we all like to be. Because I don't want to miss out on restoration of Jesus in me or in us. I don't want to be the ones who pretend and put on and try to be respectable because the more the more you're willing to be free the more you'll be willing to crack your heart wide open and let Jesus restore it and do whatever he wants. And the thing he wants most is to restore your soul. Her restoration story is that she became somebody she had not been. The story started and she was the sinner. The story ended and she was the worshiper. The story started with what she had done wrong. The story ended with everything that she was doing that was right. And now we don't know her as the woman who was the center. We know her as the woman who was pouring out worship to Jesus. This is how God restores. This is what he does. Her restoration story If you try to put it into a sentence, it might look like this. She had lost her worth, but Jesus restored her with a heart of worship. She had given up that she had purpose, that she had meaning, that God had hope for her. She would lost all of her worth and just gave her body away, her heart away. Everything about her life, she gave it away to others and was miserable. But Jesus restored her and gave her a heart of worship for him. So this series, The God Who Restores All Things, this this has been my heart's cry from the beginning. Is that out of this, you and I would come to understand what God is restoring in us, in you, that you would know. Here's where I have blown it, and here's where I've been hurt in my life, but here's what God has restored or is restoring. Amen? And this picture that I have is us in the weeks to come telling those stories. People being willing to say, Let me tell you where I have hurt. Let me tell you where I've been hurt. But more importantly, let me tell you what my Jesus has done for me. So I'd love for you to think along this sentence right here. I lost my what? What have you lost in your life? And Jesus has restored me with what? When I think about the potential of a a group of people knowing this and being able to say, 
I know God's purpose for my life now. The sin that I walked through, the sin that happened to me, where sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more. And now I know my story. I can tell my story. And I want to tell my story. I'm not going to hide my sin, my shame anymore because he's given me double honor in the place of my shame. It actually makes him more glorified when I'm willing to tell the story of my life. Amen? So, this is my challenge to us today. Let's begin this process. Some people in this room already know their story. Some people you'll get to hear even next Sunday tell their story as they fill in this blank. But my prayer, my passion, is that we become a church who crack our hearts wide open to what God is willing to do and wanting to do in our life and letting him do it so that he restores more than we've lost. And we become a people who shine like bright lights in the midst of a very dark world because we've been called to that. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I know you're at work. I know your ways are higher than our ways. And I know that your desire is to take even the darkest parts of our life and make them alive and filled with light. I pray that would happen now in our hearts in the days ahead. That in the place of hopelessness, hope would arise. In the place of death, life would arise. In the place of there, where there's been shame, that honor would arise. And that we, your people, would see miraculous things happen because we're willing to be broken before you and worship you. God, I pray that work would even begin this morning because I believe that where there is pain, it's a setup for grace and great miracles. So God, based on what I know is happening in our world today and in our lives today, there's a great miracle about to happen. So God, I ask you to finish what you started because you promised it and may we be willing to walk into that. We pray all of this in the strong, powerful, restoring name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with me as we sing today. All right, so we got a restoration story we're going to close with today. Let me invite Sis Monty to come up to the stage with her husband. Sis is coming today because she's going to be baptized. Amen? Yeah. We've, uh, we've been talking a little bit over time, and we were just waiting for this day. We had to get past some things, but here she is today. Right, sis? Come on. And she's going to say just a few words, right? Yes. All right. You got this. Hey, why don't you introduce your husband? Oh, everybody, this is Pete. This is Pete. Yeah. Come on. Wow. Wow. From Psalms 86, 11, 12, 13. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear and honor your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the grave. Amen. Yeah. 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 Sis has put her faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, she has. And she's ready to make that public. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk with Sis yet, but she is uh, full of joy and a delight. So I pray you will. She's a delight at the ladies' Bible studies, I hear. And so... I am so excited that you're willing to make this step public today. We've had a lot of children lately 
be baptized and you're not a child, that you are a delight that the Lord has created and now recreated in him. And we are grateful. You are a picture of hope that Jesus gives us in our life. And all of us are here to celebrate with you. Amen? Well, let's make our way back here for, for baptism. We've talked about over weeks past how baptism is a picture of what Jesus has done for us in death and resurrection. And so now, through it feels good, doesn't it? Yeah, go ahead and have a seat all the way down. promised us if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness this water doesn't do that the blood of Jesus does that but this water makes a pretty good picture of what it means to be washed to have our past buried and taken away from us and to be resurrected in new life amen and for that I'm grateful I'm grateful for you and for the blood of Jesus and new life. So sis, I baptize you as my sister in Christ. You are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life.